Let's pray. Lord, this morning before we climb into the Word, before we engage the message you have for this people, I want to pray for another people. I want to pray for their pastor. Lord, we want to pray for Lake Point Church in Rockwall. I want to pray for Steve Stroop. Lord, I feel sort of awkward praying for a gargantuan church and a pastor that's been in ministry for a long time. Lord, I want to pray that truth will be enjoyed. And I want to pray for another church that could have the potential with just ample resources to make an an effort to be edgy and to focus on the packaging and to give people what they like. And Lord, I pray more than that, that Steve is driven by truth and the Holy Spirit to unpack and expose the Word each week. And the folks that are drawn to this church that's just down the road, that they are drawn to truth and not drawn to packaging. Lord, I pray for folks that are part of this church, that they stay and engage because of truth, not because of, I don't know, fair rides. I pray that very carefully, not in judgment, but in a burden for the truth to be enjoyed down the road in Rockwall. Lord, I'm thankful for the lives that you have changed and shaped through the ministry of Lake Point Church. I'm thankful for this pastor that planted in a living room. Lord, I pray that the truth will be on display. I pray that you'll guard them from wanting to build a dynasty, but that they can be a kingdom church that's planting and releasing and sending. Lord, I'm thankful for the relationship that we have with so many people that are in this church. Lord, I pray that it be truly shared worship, that we enjoy you and cheer for each other. We cheer for your name and fame and renown in and through Lake Point Church this morning. I pray for Steve and his study. I pray that he's blown away by worship and truth and gospel and that what drives him is a desire to unpack and expose the truth and to walk in it and to make disciples, ultimately, for your name and renown. Lord, this morning, this little church gathers around a Bible, and I'm shocked by the crazy privilege that we have of listening in on a conversation between your son and yourself. Lord, I pray that for the next few minutes that we appreciate the gravity that these words were spoken out loud. First of all, that they were even spoken. Secondly, that they were spoken out loud. Third, that they were recorded. And fourth, that we have the crazy, scandalous privilege of having these words in our language in a book that we can buy nearly anywhere and that we can enjoy them this morning. I pray that you will expose it. It will give us a higher view of what you've done and who you are. We can understand you more as a result of this and that we can worship better, more consistently, more effectively for your name's sake. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. I hope I, my prayer was Godward. I left my pen.
but I, I feel like I need to say, I, when I pray for something like Lake Point, I don't pray in judgment. It's easy to judge a, something. You know, the bigger you are, the easier it is to throw rock at it. At it. <laughs> and that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> Trust me. I, man, I am blessed in so many, on so many levels by what God has done and continues to do through Lake Point. I just see the potential trappings, the potential to focus more on packaging than substance. And I'm not saying that's happening, but man, I would just pray for this church down the road. This morning, as I prayed in the prayer a minute ago, we have a crazy, scandalous privilege of listening in on a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. I don't know if um, each week it's hitting me. We started last week, and each week as I study, it's hitting me more and more the, the gravity of the scandal that we have of even listening in and unpacking it and enjoying it. So my prayer this morning has been that uh, I would worship through preaching and that y'all would worship through listening and that God would be enjoyed as a result of the time that we spend together. Let's start with the prayer. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the world or to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled." But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak to the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, 
so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. It's a big prayer on the eve of his crucifixion. God the Son has an out loud conversation with God the Father. We don't know if all 11 could hear it, but we know John heard it because John recorded it. I want to give you a kind of a big picture plan for the next few weeks, months. I don't know however long it's going to take us to get through John 17. But the big picture outline, in case just kind of a bird's eye outline, you want to know where we're fitting in. This is simply a route through John 17. It's not the way to outline John 17, but it is the way we're going to as we unpack it. First, he prays for glory. Second, he prays for the protection of his followers. Third, he prays for the sanctification of his followers. Fourth, he prays for the oneness of his followers. And fifth, he prays his followers will be with him forever. Right now, we're still in number one. And I think we will be this Sunday and Sunday after next. And I'll explain at the end of the morning what, what's happening next Sunday. Jesus prays for glory is the petition that we're considering right now and just unpacking. He asks, he asks for some things relative glory and he makes some statements about glory. So what we're doing last week, this week, and the week after next is we're just sort of considering this diamond glory that's hard to describe and hard to define by looking at its facets. And there's five of them in this prayer. Last week we looked at the first two. This week we'll look at the next two. The first two that we considered last week is that the Son wants to be glorified so that the Father will be glorified. And they're going to glorify each other since the Father has given the Son all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to some. It's a very difficult truth that we engaged last week, not for the first time. We engaged last week the consideration that as he's praying for specific people on the eve of his cross, that he goes to the cross with specific people on his mind. That it wasn't just an effort. I hope this sticks. I hope somebody, hope this works for somebody. But that when he submitted to wood and nails and a flagrum, that he had people in view, those who have been given him by the Father. That's the glory of election. And it is a glory. Second thing we considered last week, the second facet is the Son is glorified, in, or the Son glorified the Father on earth by doing His work. Sons in this day and age did what their daddy does or did. And Jesus did just exactly what His Father does and did. He brought glory to His Father by completing the work that was given Him and doing what his father had been doing for ages. We also considered last week that his work, in contrast with our work, is fruitful. Our work is dead. The best works that we have to offer are dead works. But that his works are effectual and living. And that this, when he said on the cross, it is finished, that the work was completed. 
The works that we do now are just in response to what's already been done. This week, we're going to consider two more facets of glory. And here they are. First, in verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He asks for pre-creation glory to be restored. Second thing that we're going to consider this morning is in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He asks that those that the Father has given him will be with him forever to see his glory. Those are the two things we're going to consider this morning. First, the Son desires glory in the Father's presence, and he desires specifically asking for his pre-creation glory. Somehow when Christ took on flesh, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Somehow when Christ took on flesh, somehow his glory was contained. I'll use the term dialed back, and I want to use that term very carefully because I don't want anyone to have the impression that he was any less God. When Christ took on flesh, he's fully God, as he's fully God now, God the Son. When he took on flesh, he wasn't any less God. In fact, he's very God of very God. We'll look at that later. But when I say dialed back, and I'm going to explain here in a minute what I'm referring to, somehow his glory is dialed back, and that is a sweet mercy. His request to the Father is, Father, I'm about to come to you, and I want you to restore my pre-creation glory. Now, considering some things we're going to look at this morning, we believe that he's speaking specifically of his pre-incarnation glory. That he had a certain glory and has had a certain glory for eternity past and eternity after now. That somehow was modified when he took on flesh. So we believe he's specifically speaking of his pre-incarnation glory. He's asking the Father to restore that via the cross. Let me show you Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi about humility. In verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, we could say very God of very God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the way we're unpacking this passage in John, considering this this prayer, considering what, he's, what, what Paul is saying there, is that he didn't feel like, I, I got to hold on to this thing so much that I can't go do what my father's told me to do. He didn't consider this thing so deadly grasped that he couldn't somehow take on flesh. Watch what he says next. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of Men. It's not just what he did when he was here as a servant, but the fact that he even showed up. The fact that he even takes on flesh is a scandal. God, creator, is going to somehow become on par in many ways with created, yet still remain creator. 
The incarnation is crazy. And for him to take on flesh, something had to happen to his glory. His glory is dialed back while he remains completely God. Turn to Exodus 33. I'm going to show you two snapshots of the glory of God where I want you to understand what Christ is asking for here by understanding what he had pre-incarnation. Exodus chapter 33 is sort of a high watermark of the story of the relationship between Moses and God. Moses has been leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness. He's got this relationship with, with, with Yahweh. You'll see that in a minute. And Moses asks God in verse 18 of chapter 33, Please show me your glory. Sounds like a, a, a reasonable request, but what Moses doesn't know is, buddy, you don't know what you're asking for. Watch what the father says. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on who I will show mercy. That sound familiar from last week's study? See, all these things are connected. But he said, mm, Moses, you cannot see my face, though, for man shall not see me and live. You can't handle my glory, homeboy. You'll be burned up. My glory is so radiant, so bright, you will be consumed by my glory. And the Lord said, here's what we'll do. Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will stick you in a little bitty crack of the rock. I'm going to stick you in a cleft. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen because I still got stuff for you to do and I don't want you to be consumed by my raw glory. That's the glory of God. So for God the Son to take on flesh, something's got to happen. Because <laughs> if he doesn't, Bethlehem's going to be burned up. Nazareth consumed. Whoosh, Samaria and a well and a woman whoosh, consumed. Bethany, Jerusalem, consumed by his radiant, white, hot glory. Something had to happen, and it's a great mercy that he dialed his glory back. Let me show you Isaiah 6. Turn to Isaiah 6. <clears throat> this is going to be a surprise to some of you that are familiar with this passage. It may not be to, to all of you. Some of you, we've engaged this consideration before. Isaiah 6 is one of the most profound pictures of God in our Bibles. And it's funny that Isaiah, watch Isaiah. You can imagine Isaiah is looking for a crack or a cleft as well. Watch what unfolds here in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He's high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We sang that this morning appropriately. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. Where is a cleft and a crack that I can go melt into right now? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This Isaiah 6 passage, for me, for the longest time, I just assumed that this is the Father. But I found in John chapter 12, as we were moving through John chapter 12, don't turn there, just listen. John has eaten a diet of Isaiah. And John quotes Isaiah often. And here's a passage in John chapter 12 where he's explaining sort of a summary of the ministry up to John chapter 12. And he's explaining why the people haven't believed in Jesus. And he starts quoting Isaiah. He says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. That's the passage just beyond where we just read in John chapter 6. John is quoting this context of Isaiah chapter 6. There's a very distinct and clear connection, and watch what he says next. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He's speaking of Christ. He's speaking of the white-hot glory of Christ. He saw Christ in that throne room in Isaiah chapter 6. He's like, where's the crack in the floor? This glory is absolutely too radiant, too majestic. The splendor is just something, it's more than I can bear. So something had to happen when Christ shows up in the flesh or he could not be beheld. He's praying for his pre-existent glory to be restored. And he's telling us and teaching us that he somehow dialed it back. In order to understand what he's asking for, I want us to first consider the great mercy that he dialed it back, thank goodness. Or he could not have even been beheld. Now consider that he asks that his pre-creation, or we can interpret pre-incarnation glory, be restored. And he says specifically, in the Father's presence. This is so key. He's asking for his glory to be restored, this white-hot glory, in the Father's presence for the Father's enjoyment. The thing I want you to get as we consider this for a second is that God really enjoys himself. It'd be weird if a fallen creature was so into themselves. Like, man, there's something wrong with you. But when God enjoys himself, now that's right. He's worthy of enjoying himself. And the son is asking for his pre-creation radiant glory to be restored so that the father can enjoy that yet again. The reason I want to bring that out, the reason I want to enjoy that and engage that together is because our gospel so distorted here so easily. It's so easy for us as his creatures to place God at the, to place ourselves at the center of the gospel instead of God at the center of the gospel. 
It's so easy for us to think that God did all this for us instead of understanding that he did all this for us, for himself, for his own enjoyment of himself. I want to be really, really careful and really gentle in what I say next. Because this, I, I, I know the heart behind this, and I know that folks that engage this are believing and wanting to do a good thing by saying this. You need to understand that God is not madly in love with you. He's madly in love with himself. Via you. He enjoys this gospel, not for your sake, but for his own sake. We're simply instruments that he uses for his own enjoyment. And why can he do that? Because he's God. He's worthy of that sort of enjoyment. That's why he's jealous about his own name and his own glory. That's why he guards it so zealously. He's worthy of that enjoyment. And yes, God loves you. But ultimately, we don't park the gospel at us. We're not the end of it. He's the end of it. He loves us so that he can love himself well. So that he can be glorified. So that he can be enjoyed. He loves us as vessels of mercy, bringing glory to himself. If your gospel parks at yourself, you've missed where it's supposed to take you. If someone is hurting, then it's a band-aid on cancer to tell them that God is madly in love with you. It's a band-aid. And we may go there first. But you've got to go to the next place that says, you know what? He loves you because he ultimately loves himself and he's using you as an instrument of glory, an instrument of mercy. When Christ is praying for his pre-creation glory to be restored, he says, I want it to be enjoyed in the Father's presence. That's key. That's important. It helps us diagnose our own understanding of the gospel. Who's it about? It's about him. We are simply instruments of glory. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to speak to that last point more later. That it may flesh that out some more. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 8. The writer of the book of Hebrews realized is writing this side of the cross and resurrection and ascension. So by this point, the glory has been restored. What Christ is asking for has been completely fulfilled in that his pre-creation, pre-incarnation glory and his full radiant majestic splendor is fully restored as he's right now at this very moment is seated beside the Father's right hand. So the writer of Hebrews is writing on this side of all that happening. And in verse 8, he says, on down into verse 8, he says, Now putting everything in subjection to him, as in like right now, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It may not look like it, but Colossians tells us he's the one in whom all things are held together. Everything's under his control right now. 
But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's his incarnation, namely Jesus. But we see him now crowned with glory. And that's pre-incarnate, pre-creation glory and honor. Watch, because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The doorway into that pre-incarnation glory being restored was what took place the very next day. He's praying for something that's going to be achieved through the events of the cross the next day. On the other side of what unfolds and his resurrection and his ascension, he is crowned yet again with absolute and complete pre-incarnation, pre-existent, pre-foundation of the world, glory and honor. And it's because of the cross that all of that is restored. And when we see him yet again, we will see him in all his glory. He's not going to show up riding a donkey's colt. Matthew chapter 25 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll, he will sit on his glorious throne. Listen to this passage from the book of Revelation. So speaking of the new Jerusalem, the place where we'll spend eternity that's going to be on a newly created earth, this new Jerusalem is just awesome to study. It's going to be as long as it is wide as it is tall, like thousands of miles high. Now, how in the world that's going to be achieved? I don't know. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This is so much more than him just being like a human light bulb. But this at least gives us some sort of imagery where we can somehow connect to what this new Jerusalem is going to be like. Who needs the sun? Who needs lamps? All those cool old 70 lamps, you know, they have the little tassels hanging out. Throw them in the trash. You don't need them. Flashlights? Who needs them? Fans with light, spotlights? Who needs them? There will be no dark alleys. There will be no dark nights. And that's in reality and figuratively. There'll be no dark valleys. It'll all be lit up by the radiance of the Lamb. The pre-incarnation, pre-existent glory will and actually is currently restored. And that's what we will experience in heaven. His full splendor and full majesty. His request also, I want you to understand, implies something very important that we're not just going to take as a given. That his glory that we've been considering that is going to be restored was in fact pre-existent. We're not going to take that for granted. Turn to John chapter 1. And I'm going to explain why we're not going to take that for granted once we look at a few passages in John. It's an important theme in John that connects to something that Christ is praying right here in John chapter 17. So I want you to see this. This is just a sampling of passages through the book of John regarding his pre-existence. And I'm going to explain to you why this matters so much. 
John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This word is capitalized in your Bibles, as it should be, because we know from verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking of Christ. And John says right up front, this word already existed. I like how the, the, the Spanish Bible says the verb. I like that for Jesus, the verb. The verb already existed. The verb was with God and the verb was God. He already was. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He already was Look at chapter 1, verse 15. John bore witness about him, his cousin John, his older cousin. He bore witness about Christ and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, i.e. he's born after him, ranks before me because he was before me. When John was born, Jesus already was. Look at chapter 6. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You think he wants to make the point that he already was? He came down from heaven. He didn't start in Bethlehem. Those were not his beginnings. He already was. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is the revival gone bad. If you're familiar with it, you know that things go south when they start talking about slavery and Abraham. John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham saw Christ's day because Christ already was. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's not just a statement about his preexistence. It's a statement of his deity. He's tying it back to the name of God, Yahweh. When God showed up in the burning bush and told Moses to go lead his people out of Egypt, Moses says, okay, well, uh, God, who shall I say sent me? I mean, you tell him, I am that I am sent you. And he goes on to say that his name, the Lord, in in Hebrew is Y-W-H-W, Yahweh. It has no consonants in it or, or vowels or something. It's just sort of a weird thing. In fact, Jehovah is not even God's name. Jehovah is just an attempt to pronounce Yahweh, where we've inserted some consonants in there. It'd be like calling me Bill. That's why you never hear me use it. That's why we never use it in the language of the church here. Jehovah is not even his name. His name is Yahweh. And when Jesus says, I am, before Abraham was, I am, he's not only saying that I'm preexistent, he's saying, I'm God. And so they picked up stones to throw at him because they wanted to kill him. 
He can say that because he already was. In John chapter 16, verse 28, he says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. I came from the Father, and after my cross, resurrection, and ascension, I'm going home to where I've already, from everlasting to everlasting, preexisted. This is an important theme in John. We're also in John chapter 17, the other passage we're looking at this morning regarding his preexistent love. You loved me before the foundation of the world because I already was. Other passages, Micah chapter 2, verse 5, just listen. But you, O Bethlehem, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. When he showed up in Bethlehem, he already was. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Paul writes to the church, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, speaking of the Exodus 1,500 years earlier. 1,500 years earlier, he says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Christ not only already was before Bethlehem, he already was before the Exodus. And he traveled with them on the exodus through the wilderness. Colossians chapter 1 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He already was before creation. Before God said, Let there be light. The verb already was. Revelation 22. Christ says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the beginning and the end. Because he already was, and he will ever be. You might be thinking, man, we're beating a dead horse. You need to know this has been an important argument over the ages in the church. And there are contemporary heresies that I'm going to speak to here in a minute. Today, that will knock on your door. It was an important argument in the early church. Around 300 A.D., there was a man named Arius. Arius was a priest or an elder or whatever term you want to give him in the Alexandrian church. Alexandria, Egypt, not Virginia. And he held, listen, that there was a time when Christ was not. And he taught that. And this teaching just went crazy in the Christian church. He taught that begotten meant created. He taught that there was a time when Christ was not. If he were to represent Christ geometrically, he would be a ray for you math whizzes. Like a dot 
with a line that goes on forever. But he says there was a time before the dot when he was not. So a council of Christian leaders got together. 318 bishops got together at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. And they dealt with the nature of Christ. The earliest creed that we know of came from this council. And they dealt with the nature of God, really. This is the earliest trinity handling. But they dealt with the nature of Christ. And here's what they said based on their handling of the Scriptures. Listen to this. They said, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. These 318 early church fathers, our early church fathers, got together and said, let's nail a piton in the granite wall of truth as an anchor that we can go back to. Pitons are what rock climbers use to hook their little carabiners in so they don't die. And these 318 dudes got together and said, let's nail a piton in the wall and say who Christ is. He is, is not created. And what they said, in fact, there was never a time when he was not. And they nailed it into the wall. There it is. And you'd think it'd be settled forevermore. One thing I found from my study of the Council of Nicaea too that I enjoyed, it's kind of a side note, is St. Nicholas was there. The St. Nicholas. And you know what St. Nicholas did? I think that picture's up here. Let's see that. He hit Aries upside his head. It hacked St. Nicholas off so bad that he popped him upside his head. There's these old frescoes and tile, old ancient things where St. Nicholas is reaching over saying, I, pop, I, I got a Christmas for you, boy. You mess with my Jesus, I'm going to pop you upside your head. He apparently lost all the ornaments of his bishop role as a result of that. And that's why when you see Greek pictures of Santa Claus, he's just wearing just real basic red and white. That's priest clothing minus all the ornament because he popped Arius upside his head. I have a whole new respect for St. Nick. <laughs> he didn't exactly handle it with gentleness and respect, but I like the way he handled it. Now, leave him up here, because I, I, want, I want just to have a vision, a visual of St. Nick as we consider some contemporary heresies. I want to show you why it's so important that we engage this in the year 2010 in Greenville, Texas, and not just say, oh, yeah, he already was. Okay, move on. Current heresies within the Pentecostal movement are something called the oneness teaching that I'm going to call the oneness heresy. And it's not all Pentecostals, but it's a significant movement within the Pentecostal church. The oneness heresy or the Jesus-only movement, it has some other names, modalism, believes that God as Spirit Father took on flesh and after Christ has ascended, I guess, into spirit again. Mark pointed out, we were talking about this earlier in the week, and Mark said, well, that would just make John 17 not a prayer. It'd be like a soliloquy. Where Jesus is just off talking to himself. Sort of like Shakespeare. God's off talking to himself. Looks like he's talking to somebody. He's really just talking to himself. That's a prayer. 
Jesus is talking to the Father because Jesus already was. This will knock on your door, I promise you. It'll show up in places that will surprise you. It was probably five or six years ago, back in the day when all the, the only staff members were me and Scott and Ruth Hardy, Tim and, or Kara Safer's mom. She worked here halftime from 8 to 12 on Monday through Thursday. And the afternoons, it'd be like crickets in this building. Scott and I are walking around studying. We might bump into each other and drink some coffee. I don't even think we had a coffee m- machine at that time. We'd just sit around and talk with each other. And, and Scott and I, actually more Scott than me, <laughs> would handle the front door benevolence opportunities, which there are a lot of them. Folks would just come knock on the door, say, hey, I need some help. I need some money. Or I needed my light pill bill paid yesterday. We had a dude show up. Little bitty dude. I mean, he's a grown man, but he's like five feet tall, short guy. And uh, he, was, he showed up asking for some gas money. And we're like, oh, you know, I mean, we don't, okay, here you go. I mean, we're like, well, yeah, what's up? And he said, well, my family's out in the van out there. We looked out the window. There's this big, like, cargo van with, like, little arms and feet and hands sticking out of every window. And his wife was sitting up front. I said, I need some gas money. To go do, a, I'm going to do a revival in Corpus. We're like, wow, man, that's cool. Well, tell us about it. Well, before he could really even tell it, or would even tell us about it, he began to ask us questions. And the first question was, Do you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? And I said, Well, I sure do. <laughs> Is there any other way? And he launched off into five or six memorized passages that were totally taken out of context. And launched into me trying to teach this oneness gospel, this Jesus only thing. And he's going to do a, a, a revival down in Corpus where some people are going to hear it and listen to it. I didn't pop him upside, by, uh, upside his head. I came close though. It really got it almost ugly. Scott had to, almost had to separate us. But uh, I, and I, it's not the model. That's before I taught on gentleness and respect. That's why I enjoyed St. Nicholas handling so well and so much. But man, it's out there and it will knock on your door. And my experience, it'll be friendlier than that. Jehovah's Witnesses are another one that believe that Jehovah, remember I told you about the name, it's not even his name, Bill, created Jesus and that Jesus created everything else. Unitarians believe God is one person and they reject the divinity of Christ, the Trinity. And Mormons believe that we are all pre-existent, everybody. That we existed as spirit children with God and that if we live right, we can get our own little earth to populate like Jesus did. And that Jesus was the firstborn of the sons of God and his brother was Satan. Mormons put... Jesus as a creature alongside Satan. They don't believe that there was never a time when Jesus was not. False teaching abounds even now. And it knocks on your door. And it's friendly. That's the hard part. This guy in the parking lot was unusual. It's going to be friendly. And you can say, this guy's nice. He must be true. But we know better because we heard passage after passage after passage from John that said, Jesus already was, brother. I appreciate you being nice to me, but you're wrong. I'm not going to hit you. 
but I'm going to show you passage after passage that shows that Jesus already was. False teaching is all around us. But we've got to know better that God is very God. Christ is very God of very God. Amen? Here's why it matters. What are the implications if he's not eternal? Could one who's not eternal give you eternal life? Could one who was created be free of the curse on creation resulting from the fall? Thought about that? If he's not eternal, he's only a model and not a mode and means for life. He's just an example for us. If he's not eternal, he wouldn't be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, as Revelation 22 says. Instead, he'd be the middle and the end. He would be Lambda and Omega, not Alpha. If he's not eternal, then our God, here's the biggest thing, is not triune. If Christ is not eternal, here's what it says about the Father. The Father hasn't always been Father. He hasn't always been the fullness of who he is now. You're going to tell me that's God? That God's dependent on some creation to come into the fullness of who he is? That disqualifies him from being God right there. Because one of the characters, characteristics and the nature of God is to be eternally whole and eternally complete. He's not served by human hands or any other creature as if he needed anything. But if there was a time when Christ was not, then there was a time when the Father was not Father. He just was something. He would have been dependent on a son, and that doesn't sound like God. Sweet passage in Psalm chapter 90. I want you to see this, because you may, as a family, decide to memorize this. It would be a very appropriate response to this morning's message, is to memorize this passage. Psalm chapter 90. Verse 2. It says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not half God, not almost God, not sort of incomplete God. You are God from everlasting to everlasting. Completeness and oneness is already in place from everlasting to everlasting. Christ is very God of very God. What will happen the next day the day after he's praying this prayer will be the event that escorts Christ back into full and radiant glory for the Father's purpose and sake that existed from everlasting to everlasting. Let's enjoy that. Now, the second thing is going to be much briefer. If that's a word, we'll, we'll just use it. John chapter 17, go back there. Much shorter. The second and last facet this morning. The son wants his followers to be with him 
to enjoy his glory forever. Watch how it's worded in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, that would be y'all as well if you are in, in the faith, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see how this thing's tied to the other facet. He's sharing a desire that those given him out of the world by the Father may be with him forever to. Now, what's behind that word to in the original language, the Greek is a henna clause, which means in order that. It's a purpose clause. For the purpose of seeing his glory. That's a product of the Father's love for the Son. He's sharing a desire for our salvation in order that we may enjoy his glory forever. This request, this spoken desire, begs us to consider what we're hoping for in heaven. A common thought that goes with, I think, a teaching of this gospel parking on you is the notion that heaven is just going to be all your favorite things and all your favorite people (laughs) and those loved ones that you, you miss and long for. You get to see them again. Maybe your old pets. It's going to be all your favorite things to eat, your favorite pastimes. That thinking kind of all goes together and fits with this. But on the contrary... Listen, the Father loves the Son deeply and has bestowed on Him glory. And by now, after the resurrection, He's redialed up His pre-creation glory and radiance. And the Son wants those given Him out of the world to experience that radiant glory forever. That's the carrot. That's heaven. Just a couple chapters before, he's encouraged their troubled hearts with these words, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, not filled with your greatest memories and your greatest foods and your greatest old friends. He says, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He's the carrot. He's the treasure of heaven. I love the notion of a pain-free existence. I love the thought of two visually impaired kids having perfect vision. I love the thought of other kids having full cognitive ability. I love those thoughts. I love the notion of seeing my old pets. I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. But I love the thought of trout fishing forevermore. <laughs> and I love all those things. I love the notion of a place where there are no more tears and there's no more sickness and no more pain because I see so much of it. As a pastor, we elders have to get right up next to it. But the real carrot is the presence of our Lord in His preexistent glory. He's the treasure I haven't read a lot of John Piper books, but one that I would recommend that is a treasure. It's called God is the Gospel. If you're not reading anything other than the Bible, I encourage you to read something like that. Don't just go to the Christian bookstore and grab anything because there's a lot of weird stuff out there. 
But there's some things that are well worth reading, and this is one I would recommend. God is the gospel. Here's a quote. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, with all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ were not there? And the answer, in light of the gospel, in light of where we go today, should be a loud and boisterous no. No thanks. Tell me where he is, and that's where I want to be. J.C. Ryle, preaching on a passage from Colossians, said this about heaven. He said, alas, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die. While they manifestly have no saving faith and no real acquaintance with Christ, you give Christ no honor here. Scott and I spent the first couple of years in this church plant visiting every home south of I-30. We may have missed a couple of streets. But in the course of knocking on every home, on every door south of I-30, we're testimony after testimony of people saying, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Yeah. And where, where people go is one of two places, or maybe both places. There's more good than bad. The scale is tipped more in this direction than the other. Or... I had an experience. I had an emotional event and I walked an aisle. And I, I don't want to discount that for everybody. But that's what a lot of people grab. It's some experience and some event. But it seems they have no acquaintance with Christ. But they would say, yeah, man, I'm going to heaven. But as this guy says, he says, you give Christ no honor here. You have no communion with him. You do not love him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you could not enter. Its employments would be a weariness and burden to your heart. Oh, repent and be changed before it's too late. While I like trout fishing, I don't want to do that for the, forever. While I look forward to seeing lost loved ones or friends, I don't want it to be about them forever. If Christ isn't there, it's not heaven. What we think would be heaven would actually be torture. Christ's prayer for those given him out of the world is that they would be with him forever in order to enjoy his glory. That's the carrot. One more quote from Jonathan Edwards. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. Heaven isn't about seeing your friends or loved ones. It's about being with your Lord and Savior. It's not about telling your old teachers, thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that's been changed. That's not what heaven's about. 
It's about enjoying Jesus forever in his radiant, pre-existent glory. That's what Christ prays for here in John chapter 17. And that's what he earns the next day on Calvary. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as a result of engaging this prayer between your son and yourself, that we can come in alignment with what the gospel actually means, what the treasure actually is. Lord, I pray that aside from being equipped to engage heresy, that more than that, that we're equipped for white-hot worship. White-hot worship that finds its way into a Tuesday afternoon sitting quietly in a cubicle. Or white-hot worship that finds its way into the driver's seat on the way to work in Dallas at 6 a.m. in the morning. White-hot worship that changes the way a man treats his wife and the way a child obeys his parents. Lord, I pray that these sort of realities will invade every space, every moment, every thought, every intention, and shape us into being worshipers. Lord, I'm thankful with this body that Christ already was. And that you have been and will ever be God from everlasting to everlasting. Lord, we enjoy that together this morning. We enjoy the epicenter of glory that took place on the cross in the most surprised places to the most surprise event. The most glorious moment this world has ever known. Lord, we love you so much. We turn the rest of this morning over to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. email this week uh, we did from uh, someone at cross point and they it was a very encouraging email and the reason it was encouraging is because um, they were connecting uh, what we're about to do in this sacrament to reality uh, it was connecting what is going about to go on right here to real life and the question was about this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul makes a statement about taking this supper uh, in an unworthy manner. And then let me just read what he says in verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he goes and says this. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And I would really like to not go there and not try and understand that, but here's what I think will really be helpful for us as a church to understand what he's saying there. This is what I don't think he's saying, that God frivolously just makes people sick 
because they failed spiritually. I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. But the context for this passage is that there are divisive people, people who are intentionally selfish and divisive. And they are not maintaining the unity that God has created among us. And when they are intentionally divisive, that's why you're getting sick and some have died. And I think that's, it means what it says there about the divisive person who is not examining themselves. Now, verse 32 says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Examining yourselves. This is how we examine ourselves. I'm thinking about 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, swindlers, idolaters, murderers will not inherit the kingdom. And then I also know what Romans 4 says, that the one who will inherit the kingdom trusting a righteousness outside of himself. And so to come and take this in an unworthy manner means that we come to this as a swindler, murderer, adulterer, knowing that we don't deserve it. Eating an atonement that you think you rate is taking it in an unworthy manner. Eating a bread and, and taking a cup that you feel like you, you can cover it, you know, you can cover your swindling, and eating this doesn't make sense. And, man, I know that when I feel like I rate this atonement, when I feel like I rate this bread and this cup, when I feel like I deserve it, I will always be divisive. I will always put myself first. I have a high view of myself. And so I want you to connect the divisiveness and what are you trusting? The one trusting in Christ alone, a righteousness outside of themselves, that's how we maintain humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. That's what that produces, what Ephesians 4 says. And so, what are we trusting? He says here at the end of this passage when he's telling them how to take the supper, he says, when you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim his atonement, his broken body and his blood. That's what we proclaim. Not the fact that I deserve it. Not, I proclaim a righteousness outside of myself. That is my protection against being the divisive man. And so, hear the warning clearly. Examine yourself. What are you trusting? If you feel like you rate it, you will be divisive among the body, and God will not have it. He won't stand for it. And he says that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So this is what I want to do. I want us to pray and examine ourselves. This is what we examine. What are you trusting in? Don't eat this if you feel like you rate it. Don't eat this. Don't come to this meal thinking that you are somehow covering your swindling. We can't do that. Let's pray. God, thank you for the warning. Thank you for the specific, clear words of Scripture. And we trust a very, very God, Jesus. A very God, very God, Jesus is what we trust in this moment. Break us, ruin us, crush us. 
remove the thoughts that we somehow are due this, that you owe it to us. And I pray we would take this in a worthy manner and throw all ourselves, our lives, and our thoughts, and our hearts, and our intentions, and our plans upon your death, your atonement, and embrace it and eat it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. And after saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the Lord's atonement, the complete finished work is what you proclaim until he comes. God loves himself via us. That is so key. Gospel does not park and terminate on us. It goes back to him. That's so key. That will just transform the way you view so much. When weird stuff happens to you, hard stuff happens to you, good stuff happens to you, whatever, you begin to see, well, this fits into a plan for his glory. And I may not understand it now, but I trust him because he's always at work and he's good and he's about his own glory. It helps you process things. It's not just absolutely true, but it gives you a whole new lens to view everything. So he loves himself via us. We are loved, make no mistake, but it does not terminate on you. That's a small gospel if it does. It's a big one if it keeps going back to him. Um, as I was sitting there this morning in these last couple of songs, I was thinking about Paul writing the church at Corinth. He said this, still seems especially appropriate, preaching John 17. When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I'm going to tell you right now, these truths are transforming people's lives. Changing the way people view the world. That's the power of God is at work right now in people's lives, in families, in marriages, in children, in young people. But it's saying that we fit into a plan and a story with a big God that's always been. It just changes everything. Church becomes less a place that you go and more a people that you are. It changes everything. It's not contained to a day of the week or a geography. It invades everything. And as you see like lofty truths like we engage today, it's worth invading. It's worth the invading. It's worth the family sitting over the dinner table and saying, man, that's just, can you believe that Jesus already was? Isn't that awesome? And a kid saying, yeah, I love that about Jesus. That's worship. It's worth a man saying, how's this going to impact the way I treat my wife? And exploring that. It's worth dot connecting. That's what worship is. It's truth enjoying. It's not fact collecting. 
Fact collectors would have just said, well, Jesus already was. Next, truth enjoyers beat it to death because there's no such thing. It's called worship. John beat it to death because <laughs> he's a worshiper. If I figured anything else, anything about church, I figured out that it's, it's very inefficient and it's just intense, I think. If it's done, I think, properly, it's intense. Because this is a sober journey that we're on. It's not something that we just, an activity that's in our schedule. It's the people that we are. So when we sit and we engage this, it's intense. So some of y'all, I think, um, probably all of us could do with listening to the message again. Or at least engaging it again in small groups. I look forward to small groups as a chance to process things for things to solidify. They just find purchase in community. God's not going to let you get away with things, finding a home without others. I'm not going to let you do it. I encourage you to connect. Let me pray. God, I pray that we can enjoy these intense truths that we engage today. I pray that this piton that's nailed into the wall will invade just our view of the world I'm thankful for this body. Thankful for a time to enjoy you together. Thankful for your word that it's it just so rich for the work of the Holy Spirit. It helps us discern these things. I pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.